Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to Sugar, Silk and Stretch, a unique boxing podcast brought to you exclusively by Ace Podcast Nation. We don't have um, Gary Stretch on board this week because he's busy doing whatever Xboxes. People, your name first. Say again? Yeah, my name is Ben Dirty. And my name is Michael Silva Lazare. Now go ahead. Um, do you know, I'm not sure what's going on this this time, Michael, because I was trying to get my head around doing this because we don't have a technical assistant on Friday nights. And I was thought we'd have an intro first. We seem to have gone straight in live. You know, it, it is what it is. Um, so I don't know what, if you're viewing this now, I don't know what you actually saw. Um, I also wonder if people are just waiting, expecting us to come on live in two hours. But Silk and I are going to make a show as best we can. I approve of the fact you just lowered yourself a little bit, so we're on the same level now because that was bugging me. You know, you know although, how I'm. Yes, although I still do look uh, ethereal. You do look ethereal. I don't have a problem with you looking ethereal. That is permissible. That is fine. I just thought it was just a bit out of alignment. You know how I obsess about the smallest details of. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that. I noticed. That. Yeah. <laughs> so talking of that, and not so small detail. It's become apparent in the last 48 hours that the IBF have taken the decision to strip Terence Crawford of their welterweight strap. And they have, as is their want in this day and age, they have upgraded the former interim champion, Jaron Ennis, uh, to the full status as full champion. Um, it was someone initially, Michael, that just appeared that one on the IBF website and the various journalists were asking questions saying, what's going on here? It, it appears that Ennis has, has suddenly morphed into the full champion overnight. They why have confirmed they, why it. Crawford, why did they strip Crawford? For not fighting Ennis. So, you know, because basically they mandated, you know, Ennis as the as his next challenger, um, which is absolutely right and proper. Ennis is the logical next man, you know, to, 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 to face Crawford. I agree. I mean, you know, and, he, yeah, he and, looks and, special. and he's also rated in the WBA and WBC, I would say. Uh, Crawford, uh, Boots? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, he, he certainly had high rankings with all of them, I believe. But the thing is, they knew that the, the reason why Crawford is not willing to or able to accommodate Ennis is because 
that uh, he has a rematch clause with Errol Spence, you know, despite the one-sided nature of that fight earlier this year. So, consequently, that is why this decision has been taken. Uh, but the thing is, that, you know what? I applaud the IBF for ordering him to fight Ennis, and I'd much rather see that than a Spence rematch. I think anybody into boxing, you know, first and foremost, would do. But there's got to be a better solution than this. And even if you're going to strip the guy of the title, surely have a more ceremonial coronation, of, you know, of, of of your new champion, at least. Because what they're doing, they're ruining... Iceman John Scully said this a while ago. They're ruining boxing history to the point where you couldn't possibly write down the last 40 years now in any readable, kind of noble fashion, because it's all... You automatically couldn't do that then because there are three world champions. So whenever you have that kind of disparity, arguably four... Right? Well, no, you definitely four. Definitely four. Get with the program. It's a, it's okay. been four for okay. decades. Well, there's four, so there's even more convolution than three. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, so at that point, you know, uh, it's pretty hard to keep a straight line. Even the most ardent is going to have a hard time keeping up with who is who and when and and who's the legitimate champion, who's the li the lineal champion, all of us that kind of stuff. It's impossible. It is what it is now. It's it's just it's words. It's alphabet soup, and I, and and it's a and it's a popularity contest, and and um, and it's also a monetary contest. Like the champion is the one who generates the most money. That's who everybody wants to fight, and that's who gets you know who gets the eyes in front of the TV. Yeah, um, and. As well as the fact they're ruining boxing history and have done, you know, that's not a news flash. That's been going on for decades. But in addition, in addition to that fact, they're ruining the kind of careers and legacies and stories of guys like Ennis. You know, Ennis is a special fighter. He's got bags of talent, bags of charisma. You know, uh, he's, he's just he's, he's extremely watchable and exciting. And um, and you want to see how, he, you know, how special a talent he is and how he's going to match up with certain leading lights in the division, you know, and potential super fights even. He's, I mean, he could be that category of fighter. But what they're doing is, you know, I mean, it, you didn't win a world title, but at least you remember the highlights of your career and they, they took place in some organic, logical way, some of them. Whereas when you talk about... If it, suppose Ennis defends his position and consolidates it for a while. Like uh, Gennady Golovkin, there was never a moment, because Golovkin was essentially upgraded as well, you know, um, so they don't get that moment of crowning glory. Even Marvin Hagler, as kind of neg negative and rancorous and controversial as it was, at least it was a moment. Do you know what I mean? It, it, when he got showered with bottles in England. Ennis has been told he's world champion by, by a phone call or an email or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I think one thing that does do, I mean, earning it in the ring, there's nothing like defeating somebody, like going, being to go back, as you said, going back in your mind, and this is the, my step, stage one, step two, stage two, stage three, and I finally, I, I fought this guy, and I got to the title, and I won it in that fight, so then there's that crowning achievement that every fighter's looking for, um, to have to have it delivered to you in the mail, as you said, or via email, it's, you know, you wake up, and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm IBF champion, wow, I didn't fight anybody, but you know you deserve it, or you know you're the best fighter in the division. And to Ennis, he probably thinks, well, there isn't anybody I wouldn't beat anyway, so you may as well give it to me. But but there really should officially, excuse me, officially be. If not, if it's not Crawford, then they, sh they should just say, well, listen, the number one contender and the number two contender are going to fight each other for the title. And that's Absolutely. it. That's how they should make the fight. The two top contenders fight for the fight. We're going to strip him. Fight for the title, and that way it's done right. 
I think by by stripping Crawford and giving it directly to Ennis, I don't know that. I don't think that's a good practice. Well, do you know? I mean, you mentioned Ken Norton. I don't know. I don't know if we were on air when you mentioned Ken Norton, or that was yes, before we came on. But I have never regarded and never accredited Ken Norton as being a world heavyweight champion, and I simply won't have it. Some people, some people argue with a certain amount of reasonableness that his fight with Jimmy Young was essentially his world title fight, and because you know, he beat him in a final eliminator, Leon Spinks wouldn't fight him because he wanted to have the rematch with Ali. And constant, you know, but but I just simply won't have it. Even though I think Kenny was damned unlucky to lose to Ali the, the third time at the Polo Grounds in 1976. But nonetheless, he's not a world heavyweight champion. And anytime yeah. somebody cites him to me as a former world heavyweight champion, I will immediately jump on it and say, no, he wasn't, because he lost all the three title fights he had. I don't know very many people that would say Ken Norton was world champion. A great person. They say it, Michael. Honestly, they say it. Honestly, they do. And it, and it's see, I hang around. I know you're in boxing and you live in boxing, but I really live in it to the point where people are talking it day in, day out, and calling me up all the time. Wanting to, talk. Yeah. and they that is a thing that Ken Norton was a former world heavyweight champion, and certainly he has more credible claim. You might think. Than some of the latter guys, like you know, like a Sergey Lakowitz or something like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> he certainly had a better career. Ken Norton is a Hall of Famer, um, but once again, I, I'm a hardliner with the Hall of Fame, and I don't, I don't think he quite cuts it. But but he's yeah. in there. Yeah, yeah. That's um, I think I think a lot of it is, you know, it's just that throwback to the time. I mean, that was the golden age for boxing, and it has the has our memories like current day people who can make the decisions to put people into the hall of fame. They grew up watching Ken Norton and being, you know, admiring him, admiring his heart, admiring his physique, admiring, you know, he, he cut into movie stars. So you got into that pop fame as well. And so you, you tend to make much more of his ability than what you would think. I mean, I remember when I was a kid and I saw Ken Norton fight, fight, and and they showed pictures of this guy and his body. He was like Adonis. I was just like, oh my god, this guy's a monster. This is like who you want to be built like. I mean, you're like nine, ten years old. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, it's like, wow, this guy's Hercules. And 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 it's a natural thing. And and so so as a man, you appreciate that his presence, his ability. He was soft spoken. He he had uh, you know he had a really good aura about him. And and. And so, yeah, he gave off all those vibes as a champ and as somebody you respect. But in the ring, that wasn't accomplished. And that has to officially happen in order for it. And he put up a great fight against Holmes. It was a great fight. Yeah. But you know what I mean? But Larry Holmes came well, up. Do you, know, you know something? If he'd have got the – let's suppose he'd have got the nod against Ali in 76. And I, I, when I watched it years ago all the way through, I thought – and, you know, I, I'm an Ali man like you are – but I thought Ali had lost the fight. I just figured he'd lost the fight. As simple as that. I wish he had. I wish I didn't see it that way, but I did. Uh, but if he'd have got the decision against Ali, and imagine he'd have got the nod against Holmes as well, that would be one hell of a game changer, legacy wise, wouldn't it? Yeah, it certainly would have. You know, what the wildest thing, I have never brought myself to watch any of those three fights in their entirety. So no. I think I have to do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I can really break it down honestly and and digest that because I mean Ken does deserve it and. And Ali's the greatest. There's nothing wrong with what I just it's hard to watch Ali so devoid of all this ability that he once had. And to see him, yeah. you know, to see him, you know, fighting Ken Norton like that and not nearly at his peak or, or on top of his abilities. He wasn't as interested then, you know, he wasn't as yeah. focused. And you could tell 
the chemistry and the relationship between him and Angelo Dundee yeah. had, had dulled at that point because yeah. you know you see in that fight right I remember I can't remember what round it is but it's in the maybe the last five rounds you know of a 15 rounder and Ali is I think he's standing up in the corner yeah Dundee is saying to him you're better off going to him Mohammed it's better than what you're doing right now and he's so despondent it's a bit like he's fulfilling his contractual obligations you know what I mean yeah, and, yeah. and maybe they've had a row they might have had a row just in the dressing room or something or maybe they didn't get on in that camp mm -hmm. but you could tell that Dundee doesn't really care. You saw him with Ray Leonard being like, be my man, you got him crazy. You made these people take notice six minutes. With, yeah, with yeah. Ali at that point, he was like, Muhammad, you're better off going to him. And maybe maybe he was um, fed up with the way Ali wouldn't listen to him, maybe, and, and, and didn't think anybody could tell him anything. Yeah. So he was just offering quietly, listen, if you if you want my advice, you, you need to back Norton up. But he, yeah. looked like he'd, yeah. he looked like he'd given up the ghost, Angie, a little bit. Well, the point. thing is, Angelo knows how to play personalities. That's one of the things that Angelo, one of his greatest strengths was knowing individuals so he could he could say things um that were pertinent to the moment yet yeah. at the same time he'd be he'd say it you know in a very languid way he'd be laid back and, and you know he he just tries to identify with what a guy's thinking or feeling and give it to you that way and then sometimes you know you get the emotional and 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 who's just like like how he was against um uh, you know, Ray against Hearns or, or Ray against, uh, you know, any Duran or anybody. I'm sure he was like fervent in the first Dur Duran fight. Like, how could you change? How could you make a difference there? And you can't lay back in a moment like that. But with, with someone like Ali, who's been there before and has just done everything that has to be done, at some point, you just know you're talking to somebody that, not that he's unresponsive because he doesn't like you or respect you, but it's just, your adrenaline, the stores of adrenaline are not the same as they once were. And yeah. so, you know what I mean? It's just, they're depleted. That's all there is to them. And he understands that. So he can say things, but he knows that they're, and it's not like they're falling upon deaf ears. He just doesn't have the chemistry within him to pull that out. Yeah. And emotionally, and also Ben, and emotionally. So, okay, so fast forward a couple of years later, and he has the ability to do that against Foreman. But Foreman was a different level. That wasn't a couple player. of years later. Well, I'm talking about the last fight, 1976. Yeah, well, we're talking about the first fight with Norton, right? No, we're talking about the last one with Norton. We're talking about the last one. Okay, I was talking about but that. That was one. the World Title fight. That was, that was the point. Okay, so the Norton fight and, and the Foreman fight between the first one and the Foreman fight. You know, when Ali was, you know, I mean, that was a lackluster performance he put. Many people would say it, he it lost was, that. but I, I feel we're getting off the point because the idea was the other two Norton fights were non-title fights, and the notion was that Norton could have become a world champion, possibly. And he was later, he was later, you know, a great, you know, made a world champion in a boardroom when Leon Spinks refused to face him. But um, but yeah, regardless, but then the, the other point I was talking about, you know, Ali and Ali's ability to respond to Angelo. So that's where we kind of. Um, yeah, I understand. Diverged, but I understand that. Um, staying on the track of the the Alphabet Boys theme, they were around. Certainly, they, they've been around. You know, in another format since the nineteen twenties. But by the time that Ali beat Leon Sphinx in the rematch in New Orleans and then retired, that was when they really got their teeth into professional boxing. 
and things, you know, it kind of met- metastasized into the crazy situation we have today, Michael, because suddenly it was throughout the 60s, you know, they had a WBC and a WBA guy often, but it really seemed to take root and enter the public consciousness and everything else in the 80s when you had, you know, obviously you had Larry Holmes who, who won the vacant WBC title against Kenny Norton and you had that merry-go-round, you remember, of the WBA title just like past the parcel. And then... Obviously, as you alluded to uh, a little earlier, you got the advent of the IBF in 1983-84-ish. And then towards the end of the 80s, you got the WBO. And then now we have this situation when, if that wasn't bad enough, and it would have seemed crazy 30, you know, 20 or 30 years earlier to have four uh, major sanctioning bodies, it was the way that the bodies, like particularly the WBA, they started splintering their own title recognition then having a super champion or a regular champion and an interim champion. I know our friend John Scully, yeah. who never tires of campaigning for, for things he regards as being for the, in the interest of boxing. He says, you know, how can you have an interim champion when there's nothing wrong with the existing champion? Let me ask something, Ben. Stop right there for a second. If, if, if it brings more eyes to the screen, if it brings more interest to the sport, is it not worth it? Oh, you think it does bring more interest to it? I'm asking you. I'm, I'm the contrarian today. So I think I think that well, the public. It's all very well being a contrarian, but it's no. Nice I'm asking. Well. Um, yeah, I, I'm I will deal with it. What I was going to say is question. It would be nice as well if we could use our platform to try and, in you know, our new influence we've got to try and get do yeah, some good as well. But okay, let's go. You have to question things in order to get to the truth, right? You can't just Absolutely. go along with one one frame of thought. So no, I, yeah, true. So no, I I think that the public um, have been alienated a lot of them by the, the the confusion over who world champion is, and a lot of people tell me of a certain age anyway. Some a lot of people tell me that they drifted away from the sport when they, when the, when it was it wasn't just that it was also the the you know it was not on terrestrial television anymore they didn't know who was who they they couldn't name the champions and it all got very confusing for them I think you know and you think that's the reason why they drifted away from the sport do you think you don't think it's like maybe like the lack of personality or too many commercials or you know what I mean? Like fighters, people identify with fighters and you, you see a character trait in a fighter and that's, you look at Rocky Marciano, you love his characteristic traits. You see Muhammad Ali, you love his characteristic traits. You love the way they came back, the way they fought but, back. But hardships. partly. When you have fighters, excuse me, you have fighters today, they they the hardships and they come back, I mean, and they fight and people can't identify with these guys. But listen, that was because they were the heavyweight champion of the world. That was Mr. America. That was Mr. World. They wouldn't have that same gravitas if they were the WBC champion. There was another guy, the IBF, and there was a WBA regular champion. They wouldn't have that chance to, to symbolize as much as they did. So much has changed in culture, you know, in entertainment and sports. But the fact that they were the heavyweight champion of the world, which is basically a redundant concept all but now. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So you couldn't be like, you know, that, that Kings of the Ring documentary, which charts the kind of progression since Jack Dempsey to Mike Tyson, and it explains the importance of the World Heavyweight Champion and the way in which they mirrored their ages, you know, their eras. There's now, you couldn't make that documentary today because, I mean, Fury, Tyson Fury does mirror his age in many ways, you know, an age of clickbait and disingenuous, you know, claims and, yeah. well, and, you and also, COVID, but... Ben, to, stay, to stay on the point, you also, you have, like, the WBA, WBC, IBF, WBO... They're competing against one another. Mm-hmm. 
that's what it is. So, so if you were to look at these organizations and they're separate fractions of whatever, of, you know, they identify who the world champion is in their eyes, you have at least four different organizations and bodies looking at one guy. And if they give them his title, like they did with Boots Ennis, for instance, they gave him his title. They gave him the title. That means he's their guy. And he's the guy that's got all the eyes on him. He's got the, he's the guy that people are talking about. He's the he's the it guy at the moment, right? So he's the it guy of the division. And no, so, well, no, he's not. No, Terence Crawford is. Well, Terence Crawford is looking at super fights now. He's thinking about Canelo. He's thinking about sure, but, but he he's, is, he's fighting for money right now. He's not, not thinking about getting the title because the title will allow him to get to money. Now he's made that. He's he's won the title. He's done that. He's done that big fight that's got him on the tips of everyone's tongue. Now he's looking to make more money. He's not worried about. He's not saying like, okay, so the WBA or WBC, IBF, whatever. They say, listen, uh, this is the bid for this fight. This bid for this fight is two million dollars that you and Boots are gonna split. Like this, he's like, but I can I can make fifty million dollars fighting Canelo Alvarez. Why am I gonna make a million fighting Boots? That's just the economics of it. That just absolutely plainly makes sense. So, yes, he's going to ignore the IBF or whoever has the yeah. title. And he's going to say, you know what? Forget it. I, I did all. I worked and I toiled since I was a teenager. I fought hard. I suffered concussions. I've been knocked out. I knocked people out. All of this, that kind of stuff. I need that. I need to show that there's, you know, the part of the, I need to see that part at the end of the rainbow. So that's what a fight was going through. And I completely understand that. But at the same time, yeah, by not recognizing the, um, the the pastime of boxing itself, going back to the glory years of Ali and Marciano and and Jake LaMotta and you know and, and 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 all those guys. But one thing that's a constant in this world with every single living organism and every single business thing we do on this planet is change. Change is the only guarantee. It's always going to happen. And, and that's what's happening in boxing. Change is happening. And we have to be able to adapt and go with it is what I'm really trying to say. Well, what? So you you don't believe in any kind of movement against this and to try and restore or, or even just create, never mind restore, just create an undeniable logical sense of a world number one. Whatever tournaments they want to have, like a Super 6 or, you know, a Super it's 4 or a Super 8. Yeah. But uh, by, already, by already by recognizing four different you know, uh, organizations by, by, by already, by already identifying them and, and going by their way of judging for a champion. If you got one, if you got two, you can have 10. If you have 10, you can have 20. Well, do you know what Bob Arum said? Bob Arum said that I hope there are 10, you know, uh, in a few years from now. And he said this a long time ago and they said, why? He said, cause hopefully it will destroy them. He said, and they will have no relevance and leverage whatsoever. He said, I hope the title's proliferate so badly that it becomes a complete joke and then we can get back to then we can actually ignore them that that was Aaron's take on it so obviously yeah, he didn't, he, yeah I believe that but I, I believe there also has to be some kind of like burn down build back up something has to be built back up again and someone has to do it better than what it was and well, there, just, there are very few people there's everyone's just so unimaginative in boxing they stick to the same old you know what I mean the same old they do. layout and nobody rethinks the sport. 
And that's the problem with boxing today. It's not the fact that we have 10 titles, five titles, recognize three guys. It's like nobody's doing it better. Nobody's making the sport better. Everyone's just trying to make money in the sport. And that's the biggest problem. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And you know, um, Dana White, who's obviously done fantastically well with the UFC brand, he said that he is very critical of boxing and the way it's run. And he speaks. He a fight here in New York last night, I believe. Okay, so he he uh, identifies as a boxing fan, but he says that boxing has just got is its own worst enemy. And what echoing what you just said there, he said that in boxing, every fight is a going out of business sale. That's a, like get as much money as you can and get out of town. Hey, did I tell you then? Did I ever tell you that I certified him? Um, what you certified? How do you mean? You certified- I certified oh, yeah, yeah. I remember you, you did say that. Right, right? It's so crazy. Okay, we won't go into that again. Sorry, people. You have to look in the older episodes for it. Yeah. Okay, so, so the, I mean, there's the thing. When people say, because listen, the first, I was brought up in that 1980s KL magazine, Ring magazine era, when all the journalists relentlessly slammed the sanctioning bodies. They call, this this uh, episode is called Fuck the Alphabet Boys, just to, to get a little bit of attention you know, uh, ahead of what we're what we are talking about. Your, and, your words, uh, not mine. Let's make it clear. Those are your words, not mine. Yeah, my, Michael Elagio doesn't say "fuck the alphabet, boys." Ben Doughty does. <laughs> Gary Stretch, we God knows what he would say if he was here. I imagine he'd have some annoying take on it as well. But anyway, um, somebody said, by the way, I don't want to, I don't want to get sidetracked on what I was about to say. But somebody said last week, Stretch talks the most sense, and I was like, myself and Michael Elagio beg to differ on that point. Uh, and we cannot make, you know, we cannot stress that enough. But um, I was brought up in that era of 1980s boxing magazines, and all the journalists were relentlessly against what they derisively referred to as the Alphabet Boys. And I didn't think anybody in boxing was in favour of multi-titles and splintered titles, except the tanks and bodies themselves. And then there was an interview with Alexis Aguayo in the in Cow magazine, and they said, "How do you feel about the, you know the the splintering of titles and the fact there's three world champions at every weight nowadays?" And they probably expected him to say the same as everybody says, "Oh, it's ridiculous." And Aguayo said, "No, it's better. It's better that way because more people get to make money and more people get exposure, etc., etc." So now, my that's generally what you like. I'd like to say that every fighter starts fighting because. They have this dream as a little boy of becoming the strongest, fastest, baddest man on the planet. But that's not really it, especially when you see everybody else around you is make the promoters, the managers, the trainers, everybody, everybody is making money before the fighter gets it. And so that's why a fighter has to start thinking financially about himself first. And that's why multiple titles is good for boxing. Whether I like it or not is whether I like it or not is a different thing. But the fact the financial... My problem with that, here's my problem with that. Here's my problem with that, and it always has been. It's an emperor's new clothes argument. It doesn't make any sense. A fight should have a commercial worth. It should have an organic value. If you're saying it's got this inflated... Hang on. If you're saying it's got this inflated value, 
because it's got this strap attached to it and, and it's selling itself as something it isn't, then you have a problem. I've got a problem with that on so many levels. The audience must be must be thick as uh, as planks. And, um, you know, what I would say is let's have a world number one, a logical world number one at every weight that is identifiable because that is the way most professional sports are run. That's just a logical thing. That's just a matter of integrity, regardless of it being a business and it being all about the money. But I say also, let's have new, like you just said, let's have new initiative. Let's have tournaments. Let's have ways in which fighters can earn their their commercial worth. Let's not be well, obsessed with it. The only way they can make money is if we pretend they're the best in the world. Here's, no, but here's what they do in boxing. You say, Okay, so a fight, they'll look at a fight and they'll say, okay, um, you're going to fight for the world title. And because it's a world title, a that's, world worth, title. That's, excuse me, that's, that's worth $5 million to you. If you're, not fighting, if you're not fighting for the world title. Not, not exactly, the world title. Excuse Michael, me, no. that exact same fight. No, that exact same fight. If, Boots, if neither Boots or Crawford were world champions and you said you're going to put that fight on between number one and number two contender, they're going to say, okay, here's 100000 for you and here's 250000 for you. That, that's what they're going to do. But that's as a to fight, that's going to start being millions now. When you, when you put the word world title behind it, that's ignorance, it's isn't it? a million-dollar fight. That's ignorance, right. isn't it? And don't say world title. Don't say the world title. Say a world title. It is massively important. You can, I cannot stand people saying, we won the world title or he's the world champion. No, 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 no. It, Canelo Alvarez is the super middleweight world champion. He is. And Charlo was the light middleweight world champion. But then the sanctioning bodies have interfered with that and taken one of them from him, haven't they? Like they always do. But... Yeah. See, so basically, that is based on ignorance. It's based on TV executive ignorance. It's based on, you know, the audience is ignorance. It's if we pretend it's a world title, you wouldn't get like, well, no, you, you probably do. I was going to say you wouldn't get like a restaurant serving sardines on toast and claiming it was lobster thermidor, but you probably do, you know, no doubt you do get things that are overrated yeah. and they just go on their reputation and branding, no doubt. But that is, um, I don't see. Listen, Ward and Getty made good money fighting each other, and three absolute back-to-back classics. They were. It wasn't builders for a world title at all. It's they've been historically remembered. Right. Legacy is absolute but legacy. How, how much? But how much do you think they made on that fight? I know they made like seven-figure paydays. Certainly, certainly for the last seven figures, meaning in the millions. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, it has to be. Otherwise, you could not. You don't you get. Think- seven- so huh? you think so you think Ward made millions of dollars off that? Not millions, not, 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 not like a million. On the first fight or the second fight? No, no, not the first one. No, absolutely not the first one. Certainly the third fight. Okay, so the third fight. But the fact that they had to have two of those fights in the in big in the beginning, that man put out more energy and more effort than you would see five world champions fight with. You know what I mean? And and he doesn't get rewarded for that performance, and and you know he wasn't you know he was for the world title, but he didn't get rewarded for that kind of performance. But, but you say that. Oh man, what's the what's the kid's name? Um, oh my God, is on the tip of my tongue from Philadelphia, who also beat uh, Gotti first. Ivan Robinson. Ivan Robinson, yes, you know what I mean. It wasn't a world title fight. Incredible performance. Took as many punches. Hit as hard, got hit hard. Did everything that you would ask a world title for, for. Ask of a world title. Did he get that? No. Why? Because it, it doesn't have WBC world champion. Okay, in front so let of me it. play devil's advocate. Getty and Ward, right? 
if yes. they had if they'd been fighting for a world title, let's say a third time or, or or any other times, but so it would have still been at Atlantic City Boardwalk Hall, probably, right? So same venue, same live gate, sold out. Yes, so that mm -hmm. wouldn't have changed. No, HBO, I imagine, would HBO have paid them more for it because they'd have had to pay sanctioning fees to the to, to the whichever body was was calling it a world title fight. So that would have money out of the coffers, right? For the sanction yeah, fees. Probably like a quarter million, probably. Okay. So would they definitely have made more money? Did they definitely need a belt to say they could have made more money in that trilogy? Well, I think there's there's a sense of um, of excellence. When you put world title before it, when you have a belt, a recognizable belt in front of it, it does change the marketing. Yeah, it makes the fight worth more money. But it's That's silly, isn't it? And, and we've become too obsessed with it. See the WBC, and we need to fix up. A green belt, right? They take that green belt and they put it to the forefront because they, one, it's distinctive. One, it's the same belt that Muhammad Ali held up in the ring. Roberto Duran held up. Hang on, once again, sorry. Ali, never, I never see Ali hold it up in the ring hardly ever. It, it wasn't a thing in his okay, so hard leather, But he has had it in the ring. He, I, never, I never saw him have it in the ring ever. I've, I've seen... I've, I've never actually seen him... I've seen picture of Ali with a WBC belt, usually in his dotage when he was older. But honestly, they, they didn't hold up belts in that era and certainly not in Robinson's era. They didn't do it. It was because people weren't so fixated with it. We have become so obsessed. This is a societal problem. We've become obsessed with frippery, branding and dressing and we dress I mean, everything obviously, up. The brand is, they put the brand in front of the individual. But that's the thing because you want... People want to do that who have the brand because their brand outlasts the individual, and you want absolutely. To put, you want to put um, you want to put value in the brand because that brand has to last for a long time. Yeah, and um, and this is why, incidentally, you're not getting the good fights. So you know, we're getting some good fights. Of course, there's always good fights, but it's why we're not getting a lot of the, the fights we'd like to see. And it's, uh, I think we need a reset. The UFC, I don't know much about it, but from what I understand, they don't have all these titles, right? And I realize they're not a sport. No, they don't, they but at the same time, they have fighters that are grossly underpaid and they're, and they're, right. they're you know, and physically they're so abused, even kicked in the face, you know what I mean? Broken fibula, tibula, <laughs> whatever it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like they're just, just they, they get ill abused as any fighter. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and that's the and, thing people say. They say, apparently that the, the perception is that that uh, UFC is better for the fans but worse for the fighters. Whereas boxing might arguably be better for the for the boxers in, in the direction of the boxers nowadays. Some of them, yeah, uh, but but not when, necessarily when you, so you, ideal for the fans. So as a fighter, when you decide to make that move and you're going to fight for a world title, or they choose you. Yeah, things open up for you a little bit more. I would think more so. I don't know a lot about UFC and mixed martial arts and all the other organizations that go with it, but I do know that it is a very, you know, it's it's like it's it's very primitive. It's 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 just starting as well. And in fact, it's almost like that's what boxing was before it evolved to boxing, and then boxing is devolving, and then this MMA is coming up again. So it's you're going back to. I mean, because there was a time when you barely a guy had to just raise his knee up off the canvas and you go whack him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep. Like in boxing, like you barely if you make a move like you're getting up off the ground, you're going to catch a right uppercut. Or what you mean Dempsey's era, Dempsey and Willard? Yeah, yeah, and even before then, you know what I mean? You used to be able to like 
I don't know, kick guys, trip guys. You just couldn't gouge their eyes kind of thing. So boxing's yeah. been through this whole evolution. And finally, with the Marquis of Queensbury rules and, and fairness and all the rest of this thing, it kind of evened out. And, and now it seems like hit, it's hit its uh, uh, zenith, I guess. And, and now it's, you know, it's going towards the nadir. It's dropping off and, and it's dropping off drastically. And, and boxing's being hurt by it. But maybe, you know, some things have to be burned down in order to be, you know, like a forest fire. New life comes up under the, uh, under the ashes always. And yeah. so maybe, well, maybe we're in the midst of that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, moving into the next uh, topic, uh, but with a connection to what we've been talking about, because I was going to say earlier that you, in your era, you, you guys have won world champion in your division, one world champion to shoot for. So you had that old school sense of majesty that there was the title, there was the champion, marvellous Marvin Hagler, and that was where all your, um, your your kind of ambitions were focused on as, as an up-and-coming world-class middleweight. Um, 40 years ago today, he took on um, legendary Roberto Duran at Caesars Palace Las Vegas in a mm -hmm. fight that was actually... Um, I remember at the time, you know, people were kind of disappointed with it and thought it was a little bit of an anticlimax, but I've got to tell you, Today, I think it's a wonderful fight. Yeah, when you look at it and you look at it for um, for Roberto's skills, and and like you you look at Roberto, I mean that's the first thing you do. You look at like how did Duran go the distance with Hagler? Hagler's this monster who's tearing up middleweights, and here's a guy who grew from like lightweight to welterweight to you know junior middleweight, yeah. fighting middleweight, fighting one of the most feared fighters and a legitimately all time great fighter of all time and how did he go the distance and even make the fight competitive and it's interesting because to me sometimes i mean it depends on the eyes you look through um i remember looking at the fight and i wasn't quite sure if i saw it as a runaway for Hagler or or a close fight i, I definitely didn't think duran won you definitely didn't think duran won. you mean you definitely didn't see him winning ahead of time well, I, I look at it like this, uh, like even afterwards, I said, if you're Duran's mom, I'd vote like 8-6 in favor of Hagler. <laughs> right. And if I was Hagler's mom and I was scoring that fight, I would be 12-3. Yeah, I, I honestly, Michael, I, I agree with you because if you look at it, people make a lot of the fact that Duran was ahead after the 12th round, uh, you know, and Hagler needed to put on a good, strong finish to, to save his title. Uh, yes. But... Honestly, I think he won 10 rounds out of those 15. I, I think it's that perception again. When the underdog does so unexpectedly well, people tend to invest even more in that performance. And next thing you know, he's robbed almost. Durant thinks he's robbed. Also, Ben, you know the way, I, the way I, I like to say look at fights. is like if you're looking at your favorite fighter, that's one of the most – like Durant takes your eyes. You When you look at Durant, you look the way he moves, his mannerisms. He's, uh, he's very – like his – He's physically charismatic. His movements are charismatic. His actions, his mannerisms, just the yeah. way he moves, everything he does. He's like Ali, like Sugar Ray Robinson. He has a charismatic physicality. And so you look at that and you say to yourself, like, wow. And you're not looking at what Hagler is doing at all. You're just looking at what Duran does. And I find myself, even, even today, if I were to look at that fight, I get blinded by what Duran's doing. And I'm not looking at what Hagler is doing and throwing the numbers he's putting up. You know the his movement, how some he's some punches are missing. He's catching some stuff. That's not what I'm doing. So it, it that's one of those things again that that physical charisma that takes away 
you know, um, that takes away points from Hagler, actually. So yeah, yeah, um, and the, and you know th- th- that was that was the. Th- it's strange in a way when you think about it with hindsight that people expected this explosive kind of knockdown drag out affair because Duran had the whole kind of Latin machismo um, brand um, and he just savaged Davy Moore for the WBA like middleweight title, which that was J- Duran's renaissance, his resurgence after what people thought he was finished when he lost to, you know, when yeah. he quit against Sugoi Leonard, when he lost to Alfredo Wilfred Benitez, and when he mm-hmm. lost also a 10 round decision to Kirtland Lang, who people in the yeah. States had never heard of Kirtland Lang. We had over mm-hmm. here, of course. But, you know, mm-hmm. so people thought Duran was done. Don King had torn up his contract and essentially mm-hmm. said, You are worthless. And um, next minute, Bob Aram has some faith in Roberto. He comes back, he gets serious about training. He knocks out Pepino Cuevas in a kind of crossroads yeah. Latin. That was an amazing, that was an uh, amazing performance. Yes, and then, um, when, then, when, then when you fought Davy Moore, I think that was more of a uh, highlight Davy Moore fight than it was, you know, let's bring Duran back to life kind of fight. It was supposed to be that was supposed to be a rite of passage for Davy Moore. Yes, yes. I remember. I can't remember who it was, but they he was described as a fearless forecaster in, in our ring magazine, and he said Duran is not going to beat Moore. He said, "I only wish I was as certain about going to heaven." Is what always stay with me. That he said that, you know, um, it obviously didn't work out too well wherever he is now. Who knows? But um, yeah, but um, I, I must admit, I do love that you were talking about favorite fights of all time or favorite performances. You, you in the in the WhatsApp group in terms of future themes that we yeah. can explore, and Duran Moore would be one of mine. You know, so that made people think that that he was going to have a row with Hagler. You know what I mean? That he was going to come and yeah. bring it when that was never going to happen. When you think about it, wasn't exactly, Ben. Like you said. You would expect that to happen just from the nature of both fighters, but because both of them are trapped by their skills, that's number one. Uh, Fighters do not fight outside their skills. Many don't even fight outside their comfort zone. To be able to get outside your comfort zone is huge in boxing. But but one thing you'll never see fighters do is get outside of their skills. And so you you will only do in the ring what you've practiced in in sparring in the gym, and to get outside of that is a very very unique individual. And to be able to adapt mid fight and change what you're doing is is also an admirable skill that very very few fighters have. To be able to get outside of what you do in your your nature, your very physical nature and emotional nature in the gym you do not get outside of that in the ring. And the fighters that are able to do that, the ones that have the sense of the moment, like Sugar Ray Leonard, Muhammad Ali, I'm sure Marciano too, he was undefeated and thumped a lot of guys when when he was behind on points and he was able to to break out of whatever he had to break out of. I'm not sure Rocky adapted though. I think he just brought that same relentlessness, to be honest with you, but yeah. Okay, so again, I guess that's a form of change. If you can't change yourself, force the environment to change. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what he did. You know, I think he was. I don't know, Rocky. I got a lot more respect for Rocky's legacy than I used to have. I used to be kind of, oh, yeah. I used yeah. to be a Marciano denier or minimizer because to me, Silk, it was it was nothing against Rocky personally. It was just a straight loyalty to Muhammad Ali because when I was growing up, the kind of barroom debates, even when I was too young to go to bars, revolved around Rocky versus Ali, and it became a kind of which side are you on, which side of the universe are you on. And I was very much on the Ali side, so I would tend to rubbish Marciano, and, and I would I would attach myself to any yeah. to any intellectualized claims that he was overrated, you know, and and yeah. that he yeah. Well, and that's, 
continue to respect a fighter without, you know what I mean? Like downplaying his abilities. That's absolutely sure. Like you can, I mean, you're intelligent enough that you can prove a point of Marciano being great, but not the greatest. You you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah he's absolutely, he was absolutely, a, a, you know, a great and an all-time great. To do what he did, look, there are fighters that would get in the ring that were, that could get in the ring, I should say, that were, uh, you know, around Marciano's time, and they could never beat Joe Lewis. You know yes. what I mean? And, you know, because Rocky, he only started when he was about, like, he was, like, 20 years old or so. And I, he, was, yeah, he was in his 20s when he started boxing, like, 23. Can you imagine that? Yeah. And, do you know, Angelo Dundee tells a funny story, you know. Um, he says he first saw Rocky when he was at the Golden Gloves, or, you know, just, like, the first round in, in New York. You know, the, the, it was the novice Golden Gloves. And someone said, I got this heavyweight, you know, he ain't he ain't too clever, but boy, can he punch. But he doesn't know one hand from the other. And supposedly, perhaps the story has been romanticised, but Dundee said, this guy asked him on the stage, you know, when you're all gloved up waiting to go on, you you maybe, there's maybe bout number seven is on and you're about number 12, that kind of yeah. thing. And he said, can you show him how to throw a one-two, at least, for God's sake? Just show him, it's just one-two. And he was trying to get him to do it. And he said, the guy had no rhythm, but, but he, he looked, the one thing, he said he was... Already kind of, he didn't look particularly impressive, already, you know, balding a little bit. And he thought, who is this guy? But there was something there, you know, the, the, which made the power that he had. So Dundee is supposed to have shown him this one-two repetitively as much as he could. And then Rocky uh, supposedly goes in a ring and performs that and knocks the guy out with it. But uh, the point is that he was that threadbare when he started. And he started at an adult age. And look what he went on to, you know, achieve. It is, it is phenomenal, you know. And when people say he fought old men or smaller guys, that's not. He was a smaller guy himself for a start. Yeah, well, you know, like, I mean, there are times when divisions go through their weaker phases too. I mean, you have that with, you have that now. You had that when Larry Holmes was, you know what I mean? When he was at the top of his game, it's not like his best competition was... No. You know that that were the heavyweight greats. You know what I mean. I mean, okay, you had guys with great ability, uh, also like Witherspoon, and you know what I mean, and the truth, and you know, and and guys with great ability. But you know, in turn, I don't know. It's it's such a complex. Uh, it is complex. You, you know what? And you find yourself hemmed hemmed in by your own arguments if you're not vigilant sometimes. Because yeah. I'll say I'll say it's all I, about who you beat. Never mind title defenses or whatever, you know, sometimes I'll say that. But then I think, well, you know, you, you could use some of those arguments against Larry Holmes' greatness, but I do think Larry Holmes is one of the greatest heavyweights who ever lived. And to yeah. me, his seven-year dominance does count. And yes. it, it's perhaps he, perhaps dominant champions like that prevent fellow all-time greats because they dominate them and squash it all out of the competition sometimes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, no, I, I hear you. Also, the eye test. I just look at Larry Holmes' skills in a ring and what he can execute. And I think he's one of those best heavyweights we've ever seen. And all right, so if you can base it on Hall of Famers, he doesn't score well, but that sometimes that doesn't matter. I know how great Larry Holmes was, whether he beat a whole bunch of Hall of Famers or not. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So technically, Larry's style was very, you know, very, I don't know, there was something about it. Not, I wouldn't say herky-jerky. There was something about it that wasn't smooth, but he was very precise and deliberate and 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 purposeful and a lot of fighters throw punches that didn't have every time he threw a punch he had a purpose behind it and i love that i love that about his style the way in which he punched 
with that with that purpose, with that intent. Um, you know, it didn't matter whether he had George Foreman's power or anything like that, but he was, you had to respect him. Every time you went in that ring, you're getting nothing but 100%, you know, Larry, <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? And and the, the fact so that he's considerably, I don't know, maybe like 10 years out of his prime, and he's still giving the top fighters in the world, if not even the world champs, he's giving them everything they, they, they could handle. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I, yeah. Well, that shows you. I think sometimes the way a fighter performs past prime, like Duran versus Hagler, for instance, yeah. you know, is a, is an indicator of their ultimate worth. Um, yes. As opposed to guys that had a phenomenal prime but burned out early, perhaps. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So even getting back to that Hagler Duran fight, which you were on, so I'll just say this is how I went through the the fifteen rounds. Right, the first round I gave to Hagler. Um, I remember in the second round, like when Hagler, like Duran would fate Hagler, and when Hagler would react to the thing with two hands, and that's yeah. telling. That's telling when when you faint somebody and they react like that. Yeah. Uh, they're if they're not if they're not too tightly wound, like you know what I mean. If they're not too respectful, it's it's not. I wouldn't say it's fear. It's never fear when two guys are fighting, I don't think. It's never fear. It's always something else, like unpreparedness. You know what I mean? So um, that means you're either, like, intimidated or you're hyper-aware. But I still gave that round 10-9 to Hagler. Third round, Hagler. The fourth round is when Durant started to come on. And that's when, you know, Durant's main weapon was was you know, that walk-in right hand. And he was expecting Hagler to come to him. And, and here's the thing that Duran did, which is so masterful. And he'd done it in a number of his fights, and it's a beautiful right hand. I haven't seen a lot of fighters throw it, but it's been thrown by a lot of fighters over time. And it's you, you have your southpaw walk into your punch. And what you do is you don't load up on it. It's just a matter of throwing your right hand almost like a jab, but you have a slight turn of the body on it. So this is my right hand, right? And you get that yeah. slight, like this. And you don't overcommit with it because when you overcommit, you go past and you expose yourself. So yeah. what Duran was able to do with this, and 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 it was effective, but I don't think it was the best punch he could have used to defeat Hagler, is he threw the right hand straight straight out and had Hagler move into it. So he got his power in that right hand, even though he was it was so effortless for him, it multiplied because Hagler was coming into Walking it. Onto it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So what he wanted to do really, and this, I think this was this looked like it was his fight plan to me is to walk Duran, uh, sorry, walk Hagler into the right hand, catch him on the point of the chin right here, where all the nerves connect from the brain right here, and that way hurt him. And and that's what he was looking for the whole fight, and I think that's what he trained for in practice. But um, Hagler didn't necessarily give it to him, or Duran didn't quite set it up properly the way I thought he could have. So his main weapon was the right hand, and yeah. he wasn't able to land that clean. But the fourth round could have been Duran. The fifth round I gave to Duran for sure. The sixth round, um, the, you know, Duran used to be able to like suffocate fighters, right? He would like like fighters he'd move up against like the first fight with Leonard. If he gets the chance to suffocate you and fight you on the inside or even mid-range to inside, he's got you. And Hagler, he didn't have the strength that when we say strength, when we were talking about that a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about when I say that, I mean his his ability to put himself, root himself in the ring and not be moved. With Hagler, yeah. with Hagler, Hagler moved him. 
So he couldn't stay on his he couldn't stay on his spot. Durant couldn't find his spot in that ring. Usually you would take that one foot and you would put it in the ground and that's your anchor. And no one can move you off that. Leonard couldn't move him off it as a welterweight. Um, you know, and a lot of other fighters, Davey Moore couldn't move him off that spot, but Hagler could move him off that spot. Hagler had him rock, and even if he was catching him on the shoulder, he had Duran physically moving yeah. backwards. So and it so, does matter. It does matter, right? It does matter. Does what, matter. What, what does what matter? Physicality, size, strength. Well, physicality, well, physicality obviously has something to do with it if that's the style you're fighting, but if, if Duran's letting Hagler fight that style of fight then yeah but these are the things you know you should know our Hagler's advantage going into it for instance if Duran if I were if I were <laughs> forget if, if I was training somebody to fight Hagler I would make sure you put your score with your left hand first not your right hand in fact in fact as an orthodox would, yeah as an orthodox as an orthodox fighter he should have been using his left hand much more because his left hand is so much closer to Hagler when Hagler's a southpaw than, than, than his right hand. His right hand is the furthest thing away. And Hagler's not committing anyway with his punches. Hagler's got a decent reach. He wasn't the tallest dude, but he had long arms. He knew how to extend his arms. So he kept Hagler out. He kept Duran out here. But what, what, even if Duran was throwing that, that, that chopping, that very short, direct jabbing right hand, if he was coming with a left hand over on top of that, different fight. Absolutely different fight altogether. Have you not noticed, though, that do you find that Southpaws tend to block your left jab quite a lot? More no. than the Orthodox guy does. No. no? You don't think so? Never. never. No. I've never had a Southpaw block a jab. Never. You've never Absolutely. had a Southpaw block a jab at all? No. no. They'll, they'll move away from it, or they'll, you know, most of the time they won't even acknowledge it because most, most Southpaws are used to having orthodox fighters figure them out. Yeah. You know what I mean? So they get in the ring and they know that their trainer said to them, okay, you're fighting a southpaw, so you got to blah, blah, blah. Move to your left. Throw your right hand straight right exactly. down. Exactly. Some conventional BS. And, uh-huh. and, but, when, but when a southpaw is going to fight an orthodox, and, and it's like it's every day, and nobody says, okay, so listen, make sure you always come over your right hand, over his jab with your right hand, or make That's sure you always because, yeah, it's always there. So why wouldn't you use that against the fighter? Why wouldn't you change that up and not do the predictable? And, that's, and, that, was this, and that was the thing with Hagler. He did, the, for a while anyway, in the early parts of that fight, and the fights that Durant started gaining ground, he did the predictable. And if he would have, and if he would have taken it into, the, into a realm of unassuredness for Duran, where he wasn't sure what was coming up, this would have been a much easier fight for him. And that's why when Hagler said after the fight, he goes, you know, the next time I fight him, I'll stop him. He would make those, those are the adjustments he would have made. He would have, yeah, he, he would have. He might have done, you know, because. Sure. Yeah. You know. yeah. He understood now. So, 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 see, sometimes with Hagler, and it was really interesting, he, you'd look at him and he'd fight certain guys and you'd see him fight and you'd be like, that doesn't look very confident to me. This guy, he's the strongest fighter. He hits the hardest. He's in the best condition. He has a great chin. He has all these things. I don't understand why he's apprehensive at this moment. His body language is telling me something other than what he is. You know what I mean? Other than what he's doing. And then he gets in the ring with, with Tommy Hearns, and he has no hesitation whatsoever. But I think that's also because all that time, all that buildup to the fight, and a lot of people were questioning him after his after the other fights, 
And he's like, okay, I'm just, this is gangbusters for me. It was more than just maybe whatever dislike or disrespect he made for Hearns. It was the fact that everybody in the boxing world was saying, you're not the monster that we thought you were. You're bald. Yeah, they called him Marginal Marvin and stuff like that, the journalists and, you know. But he was coming off a good win, you know, a devastating win over Mustafa Hampshire, which injected some juice into the fight because Hearns had annihilated Duran and then Marvin had put pay to Hampshire, which it it fed well into the marketing. But you are right. After Duran, he... he, uh, Fought Wan Roldan and suffered that bogus knockdown, and and even though he did a total number on um, Roldan, and I thought he looked fantastic actually in that fight, but a yeah, lot of yeah, he was amazing. Of, I think so, but but a lot of people were critical of performances, or they thought they were they called it workmanlike was the adjective they used, you know. So yeah. I think you're right that it, against Tommy Hearns, oh. that really was his chance to cement his legacy and define it on his terms, how mm-hmm. he wanted to be remembered. Yes, yes, I am a cautious by nature counterpuncher. And yes, there's a lot of nuances to what I do, but I want you to see me as the monster and marvelous Marvin Hagler. <laughs> and, and you know, the, you know the story about the dressing rooms and the, the different vibe in both the changing rooms and the camps. Hagler said to the Petronellis, I feel good tonight, you know, and someone's mm-hmm. going down. And Tommy yeah. was supposedly surrounded by too many Kwong fighters and supposedly getting a leg massage off some hanger on, which made Manny Stewart go <laughs> ballistic, you know, and, um, do you know what Jimmy Paul said? Funny enough, after the after the KO lost to Hagler, uh, he said that he thought Tommy should retire. Jimmy Paul being Tommy's stable mate, yeah, a, a very good fighter too. He said, yeah. "I think Tommy's always a little leery going into the big one. I think he can't win the big one." And he actually said, "I think he should retire," which turned out. Could you awesome imagine? <laughs> yeah, can you imagine. Yeah, but but yeah. he was facing it. Because that was only Hearns' second loss, you know. He at that point he had forty wins and two losses, and his losses were to Sugar Ray Leonard and Marvin Hagler. So, yeah, uh, there's uh, no shame in that. Are you kidding? Uh, I mean, no obviously, that's, that's, that's not that's not what Hearns wanted. Hearns didn't, you know, he wasn't there to be, you know, the third wheel. But um, you know, and he definitely, I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> I just can't believe that he's. Sugar Ray, uh, Tommy should retire behind that. That's it, it's a fight, and in fight, fighting things happen. And 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 here's the thing: when, when Hearns went into that fight, when you hit Hearns, he's he's absolutely like when you hit him, it's not like you hit other fighters. Like you hit him, and you feel like a solidness, like like yeah. nothing budges, nothing budges. So you know when you hit him good, he's got to reverberate through the body. So you have punches. So you have punches like Hagler that get a chance to hit you, and you you know that's not going to reverberate. Something's going to break either his hand or your body, and, and it's always been your body. Hagler's that kind of puncher, and 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 Hearns didn't have that the, the thick enough. Like you look at some fighters like James Tony, for instance. I'm sure that if you were to measure his bone density, is different from everybody else's. Yeah. It's just Sergei Ali there just said, "Did Tommy look very dicey against Mark Madol? No, he didn't. I don't think. I, do you know what? I don't know if I've ever seen that fight, but I thought he did a, enough of a job on Mark Madol. Mark Madol was on the, you know, it was on that triple hitter card, wasn't it? When um, Duran yeah. fought Robbie Sims and Baron McGuigan fought Steve Cruz, uh, June twenty third, nineteen eighty six, Las Vegas. Um, I, have, do you remember the Tommy Hearns Mark Madol fight by chance, Michael? I do remember it a little bit. I do, I do know that um, I was." You know, surprised that it went that to the length that it went. Yeah, it went eight rounds. 
but uh, but I didn't see Hearns in any kind of trouble at any time. No, but, the, but, but the fact that you know Hearns is such a devastating puncher, and and Mark Medell, I mean, he was a he was a very good fighter, and and he, he took a good shot. He he um I, I think there was something about him. Maybe he was just able to take a little bit off the punch at the last second. Maybe there's something subtle going on. But it's interesting because there was another guy who was at Randy Shields, and yeah. um, maybe it was at McCracken as well, or somebody else that fought Hearns. Jeff and, McCracken, yeah, Jeff McCracken. Yeah, yeah. And, and 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 also Murray Sutherland. Maybe it's Irish fighters. I don't know. <laughs> but but, um, but yeah. they, they, he just didn't seem to have the same zip no. behind his punches against certain types of fighters. He yeah. hit him. Fresh. But you wouldn't get that same reaction. It's probably has a lot. Uh, he to slaughtered Jeff McCracken, by the way, though. He slaughtered McCracken. It was uh, Ernie I, Singletree that, that that took him the distance after after he lost to Sugar Ray. He he fought Ernie Singletree. He fought. I think he went the distance with another guy as well. Like I said, Murray Sutherland was. Yeah, was in, but I'm uh, thinking. But I'm thinking like, you know, was it Shields or Ranzini or Randy Shields? He did a number on while he was still a welterweight. People yeah, Ranzani, well, it wasn't Ranzani. People getting mixed up, but. But no, yeah, he, yeah. He but, 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 was, but one of them, but was it late? One of them went into like it was past the tenth round. Like, come on. You mean when know. he was a welterweight? Yeah, when he was a welterweight. Um, Randy Shields went thirteen with Tommy, and I think he retired. Okay, so he there you go, thirteen rounds. But, but I don't think he put a ten count on him. He didn't drop him. It wasn't a stop on cuts or over. No, no, not at all. It sounds like he struggled. Yeah, it sounds like he struggled yeah. with it. You know, he only retired due to injury. So that's um, yeah, a, yeah. Howard Weston gave Tommy Hearns a pretty. Howard Weston was another one, yeah, yeah. Uh, Harold Weston was another one, and uh, you know, you you just think. I mean, in Sugar Ray thought uh, Pablo Baez gave him a little issue too. So, yeah, because Tommy fought Pablo Baez on the undercard of Lena Kalulia, right? Yeah, you Kalulia, yes, absolutely yeah. right. But so um, was, but but. Know, uh, yeah, I just you know like so. So when I was thinking, like, where am I going back to? Where do we leave off with the Hagler Durant fight? I thought, well, the seventh round, Hagler was winning on volume. You know what I mean? Durant was expect was respecting Hagler's power a little bit. Round uh, round eight, yeah. So round eight, I gave to Hagler on volume. Round nine, um, you know, I, I that's again. This is where I thought Hagler, where Durant could start making a move, and if he was using that left hand. He would be able to come over uh, Hagler's guard or high right hand. Yeah. Um, round ten, I thought, uh, you know, what's my thought here? What's my thought here? The left hand is again, you know, his left hand. He could be sharper with the left hand. He wasn't using it. He was pot shotting, looking for the right hand. I guess Hagler kind of had a cut on his eye or under his eye. Had a little swelling at that point. Um, yeah, and then and then Hagler got on his toes and started boxing. And if yeah. anything allowed Durant to go the distance at that point, it was that it was a switch up. It to 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 Durant, Durant, Hagler acknowledged Durant's ability, presence, power, whatever he Hagler Durant was doing. It was it frustrated Hagler. He didn't get him out. Maybe Hagler was taking the 10th round so he could say, okay, these are the final four or five rounds and I'm going to be able to take it to another level. Let me get up on my toes, box him out, and then make a re-entry, make a re-thrust yeah. you know, in again. Um, but 
you know, that's to me, I saw that as one of those confidence issues. You know what I mean? Like, I, I obviously can't say I'm not in Hagler's shoes and there are people that know him better than me and I'm sure they would think it's something else. But what matters is what it thinks to the what what it means to the guy sitting in the other corner across from you. How is he going to interpret your actions? And if I was fighting Hagler and all of a sudden, you know, after going toe-to-toe with me for 10 hours, he got up on his toes and he started moving around and boxing – I'm saying, well, I'm doing something right here. And that's going to re-energize me and recharge me, right? There's something yeah. I was doing to make him switch his game up. So yeah. now we got to step on that and find out what that is. and goes from there. But but so Hagler gets up on his host boxes, but Duran's not able to take advantage of it either, right? The, the, the 12th round, 11th, 12th round, 12th round, Duran starts taking, like letting his hands go more. And Hagler took the round off, and I kind of gave that round to Duran. Um, the thirteenth round was kind of pick him. That that was like a recalibration round for Hagler as well. And then the fourteenth round, you know, Hagler reapplied himself. And it's funny about Hagler because he doesn't have a distinctive style, right? Like he doesn't have like you look at Duran, you look at Lennon, you look at Hearns. They have things about them that are very like Hagler looks very. Like basic, let's just say basic. I don't know about that. I'm not sure I agree with that. When when I say when I say in terms of identifying traits, something different than I'm seeing in identifying traits. I'm not talking about his ability. I'm talking about his identifying. Yeah, but even though I think Hagler's movement was brilliant and distinctive, his switch hitting was very distinctive, and he he might. To me, to me, all that was very conventional. Like, like that's how you, if you were to go in the gym and learn to box, Hagler would be the exact prototype. You would say, that's how you box. Do it like that. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and he didn't have like, what would be his own. What about the jump shots? What about the jump shots? Are they jumping in with a hook? Either stance. Oh, well, yeah. He jumped in with like a, with like a power jab. Right. So. Or, I would or never... a hook. Or a hook. Well, um, yeah, I most guess he would time. do it with the hook, but most of the time I see him do it, he did it with the with the lead right, right? Like that's what he nah, he, nah, hit hurts, he hit Hearns with it. He had Hearns, he had Hearns with that jump in jab kind of thing. He did, but he did it with hooks lots of times. I think I think there was some distinctive Hagnerisms that I I, I understand what you yeah, mean. I'm, I'm talking about not not even in terms of his punching style. I'm talking about in his presence, like in his movements and his. There wasn't a distinctive style. It was very. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I mean, when you say ordinary, Hagler is not an ordinary fighter. He's a great and all the rest of that kind of stuff. But his, but his, but his movement, his mannerisms, his style, his his poise is something that you would see generally. His ability and the power and the power and his endurance, all and his you know resiliency, all those things were beyond exceptional. But when you look at his 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 style, you look at it and you say to yourself, well, it looks kind of regular to me. And I think that's why a lot of people short 
shortchanged Hagler in terms of his ability because he looks extremely beatable. Like you, you look, you look to anybody, you look to anybody in the in the boxing world, and you see the guys that stand out. They they stand out. Camacho, Robinson. His, um, his whole thing during his reign was that he was unbeatable, and it was like he was like this wall guard in the middleweight division, and nobody thought that Camacho looked less vulnerable than Hagler. You know, in that in real time in that era, they didn't think that they thought there was a greater chance of Camacho getting beat than there was Hagler getting beat. That was the perception. Hagler had an aura of invincibility. Mm -hmm. He did, right? Yeah, yeah, he did. He well, he 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 had an aura of invincibility for people who weren't boxing. But not for enough, not for fighters who were contenders. You're like you'd look at him and you'd say to yourself, "Yeah, this guy's beatable." You're not looking at him and you're seeing Sugar Ray Robinson and all the, uh, you know, no. the dexterity and all the speed and all this double left, triple left hooks, all this that kind of stuff. You're seeing a man that just put in hard work. I know so what you mean. I know what you mean, right? Because he wasn't he wasn't excessively fast. He wasn't. You know, absolutely dripping yeah. with flair. It was so, because yeah. he was such a good all rounder and, so, and had such good fundamentals. You could exactly. almost argue all time great and devastating as he could be. I still understand where you're coming from. That you could say he was kind of basic. Of those four great names that lit up the 1980s, he's the mm -hmm. one you'd say was a bit more like an identikit boxer that you might have learned it from. You might have got it from a textbook and be like, yeah, this makes sense. Put all that together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Put it all together. But but um, but again, the the attributes, the power, the conditioning, the the you know, I mean the mental fortitude as well. You know what I mean? There was times yeah. you dig down into the fight, you had to show that kind of stuff. Um, you know, when he was challenged, he took the challenge on. You know what I mean? Um, so so all those things. But yeah, there was a there was there was there was room there. There was. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm trying to. I'm trying to because I, I don't ever want to downplay the greatness of Marvin Hagler. He is absolutely, you know what I mean. Respect him 100. He did things that that so many fighters can't do. And and but uh, you know there was just that one little reality I kind of had to pull out. And it always questioned me. Like as I was a fighter growing up, and I seen him do all these things, and I couldn't understand all that other stuff. But as a fighter in retirement, I was able to put it together a little bit more after watching him fight, you know, and put it all into perspective. And did you see the questionnaire from SA, SA1? Yeah, Sarge. Yeah, yes, he, asked, he asked how the, how the Harold Graham fight would have gone. Harold was Hagler's mandatory for a little while, certainly with yeah. the WBC, but maybe with the other sanctioned bodies as well. Now he's mandatory with the IBF, actually. Yeah, you, you were. Yes, so you yes. were. Yeah, with okay. the IBM, yes. But yeah. um, uh, before he fought Sugar Ray Leonard. Okay. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. So, I, I really don't think that fight would have went too well for Harold. Uh, you know you what? Know what I, mean? I Again, I think, I think that, but you're talking about the Hagler that lost to Leonard. I think that would have, I think Harold Graham would have had a good shot. Go having a similar campaign and causing Hagler problems. I don't say he'd have won, but I do think it would have been very interesting in 1987. Um, really? You think so? Yeah, against, for sure. Against the Hagler of the fight, Sugar Leonard is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, because that's when he was. That's when it would have happened. He'd have fought him instead of Sugar Leonard if he'd have, if he'd have pressed his, if his claim had been pressed and he'd have had it served. Yeah, but Harold Graham wasn't quite Sugar Ray. 
He wasn't. Absolutely not. I, I understand that. You know what I mean? Um, I understand that. Uh, very fast, hit hard, all of us, that kind of stuff. But he, here's the thing with Harold from what I saw, and absolutely respect him. He was fast. He hit hard, had great stamina, had focus, all of us, those kinds of things. And Southpaw. Yeah, his, his, and Southpaw, but which really doesn't make any difference in the scheme of things, really. Um, because his head is in the same place. His head's in the same place whether he was orthodox or southpaw. And that's the thing with him. He didn't – I do not believe I remember seeing him when he had head movement that would – only head movement is going to puzzle Hagler. If your head stays in the same places when you're punching, no. You're going to get murdered because every time you punch, that's where he's coming. You Harold created was a, a limbo dancer, right? Harold, okay, but with Hagler, sure. with Hagler, one of the things with Hagler, one of the things with Hagler is if you stay like, like he's coming back after you've punched, he's coming back that same line you took out, he's taken back to you. You're if you're if you punch and your and your head is here, where am I? If if, if here's my punch, and yeah. my head is right behind my and my head is right behind my punch, that's exactly where he's coming back. And Harold didn't do this. He didn't do that kind of stuff that Durant did. Hearns didn't either. Look where it got Hearns. And, and you know, Sugar Ray got offline. You have to get offline with Hagler. K-Man Lee didn't get offline. A ton of fighters, if you don't get offline with Hagler, no way. Absolutely no way. So you think Harold's tendency to move in straight lines and lean back from punches would have been yes. a problem? That limbo dancer. Absolutely, yeah, plays absolutely into Marvin's hands because if you're working in straight lines, if you're not giving him something he hasn't seen before, forget it. He'll adjust to that real quick. You know what I mean? And 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 when and when Hagler feels like he can load up on you, it's over. I mean, look yeah, Simpson. Yeah. Simpson had a great chin, and Hagler just buckled him. Hampshire, Hampshire's chin is insane. You know what I mean? Yeah, oh, for sure. Um, you know, I, I texted Tony Simpson today about coming on this show. I said that we'd yeah. love to have him on soon if he can make it. So I'm waiting for a response. Um, and do you know, on Sunday, we have a guest. We have former British Super Bantamweight champion Richie Wenton uh, joining us as a guest. Hopefully, Gary will be back as well on Sunday. That's going to be interesting, Silk, because we've never had four talking heads at the same time. You know mm -hmm. how chaotic it is with the three of us. Can you imagine how it's going to be? <laughs> Three I'm of us trying to one guy. But you know, <laughs> Richie Wenton is a scouser like you. He's he's a Liverpool lad. Okay, he fought. Mar he fought. He fought, I say he fought Marco Antonio Barrera, and uh -huh. he also has the one of his one of his opponents tragically Brad, Bradley Stone passed away as a result of the fight. And wow. there's a statue. There's a statue outside the Peacock Gym in Cannon Town. Peacock's moved, but the statue is still there of Bradley Stone. So that's a big. That's kind of a big signpost of you know tragedy in East London boxing, and it'll be unfortunate as the incident was. It will be interesting to talk to to Richie about that and how it affected him. So we have a great guest on Sunday coming. I imagine Gary Stretch will be back as well. I imagine you've got somewhere you've got to be, which is why we had to do this early today. Because yeah, thank you. I yeah, no on the road. That's the only way. That's, hobo, that's the only way as hobos can make money. Absolutely, you know, you've got to do what you can. You know, do you have hobos in England. We do, but we just call them tramps. <laughs> yeah, we do. That's what they're called. You know. I prefer 
hobo is politically correct. I prefer hobo. It's a bit, it's a, it's a bit like, yeah, because it's a bit like you were earlier on, but backstage, you're telling me about trim, the term trim, the American meaning of trim. Oh, right. I mean, I had a trim the other, I had a trim only yesterday, no haircut, right? But, but you mean something else when you say trim, don't you? Hey, listen, you're lucky if at this age you can get trim, more power yeah, to Go you. with it, run with that shit. Okay, always a pleasure, Silk. We'll be back, guys. We'll be back on Sunday at the more regular time of 9 p.m. UK time or 4 p.m. EST. In the meantime, don't do anything we wouldn't do. Be lucky and keep punching. Peace out. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.